The word of the Lord from Daniel chapter 8. The vision of a ram and a goat. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after the one that had appeared to me earlier. I saw the vision, and as I watched, I was in the fortress city of Susa in the province of Elam. I saw in the vision that I was beside the Ulai Canal. I looked up, and there was a ram standing beside the canal. He had two horns. The two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, and the longer one came up last. I saw the ram charging to the west, the north, and the south. No animal could stand against him, and there was no rescue from his power. He did whatever he wanted and became great. As I was observing, a male goat appeared, coming from the west across the surface of the entire earth without touching the ground. The goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came toward the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal and rushed at him with savage fury. I saw him approaching the ram, and infuriated with him, he struck the ram, breaking his two horns. And the ram was not strong enough to stand against him. The goat threw him to the ground and trampled him, and there was no one to rescue the ram from his power. Then the male goat acted even more arrogantly, but when he became powerful, the large horn was broken. Four conspicuous horns came up in its place, pointing toward the four winds of heaven. From one of them, a little horn emerged and grew extensively toward the south and the east and toward the beautiful land. It grew as high as the heavenly army, made some of the army and some of the stars fall to the earth and trampled them. It acted arrogantly even against the prince of the heavenly army. It revoked his regular sacrifice and overthrew the place of his sanctuary. In the rebellion, the army was given up together with the regular sacrifice. The horn threw truth to the ground and was successful in what it did. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the speaker, How long will the events of this vision last? The regular sacrifice, the, rebellious that, the rebellion that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and of the army to be trampled. He said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be restored. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. My name is Isaiah. As Jeff mentioned earlier, I'm one of the pastors here. I'm going to invite you to take a copy of the scriptures and encourage you actually to take a copy of the scriptures. There's one underneath the seat in front of you. In that Bible, page 791, you'll find this text, Daniel 8, that was just read for us. I want to be able to show you from the text as we walk through, so I hope you will have a copy in front of you. But before we get into this, congratulations are in order. You are more than halfway through the book of Daniel, which is easily in the top five of the most difficult, challenging books of the Bible. And we are well on our way with the foundation that we've laid in chapters 1 through 6 to really understand the apocalyptic imagery, even as Pastor Bob brought us in last week into chapter 7 on through into chapter 12. The text that Kayla just read for us reminds me of a satirical allegory 
that was written all the way back in 1944. The author was Eric Arthur Blair, and the allegory was about Stalinist Russia. The animals of a farm rise up and revolt against a drunken farmer with all sorts of terrifying consequences, and the beasts are in control. You may know this particular author by his pen name, George Orwell, and the book is, of course, Animal Farm. The vision here in Daniel 8 is almost as beastly as the vision that Pastor Bob preached through in Daniel 7 last week. So let's borrow from George Orwell and title this message, Animal Farm, The Beastly Barnyard. With that in mind, let's pray for God's wisdom together. Lord Jesus, as we approach a passage that's filled with rams and goats and horns and confusion, we pray simply that you would show up among us as wisdom pre-existing in eternity past, as the lamb slaughtered so that we might have life, and as the lion resurrected, reigning, and coming again for your people. Lord Jesus, may you be the one preaching this morning, and may you be what people remember. And it's in your name we pray, amen. So the vision of Daniel 8 is intense. It flashes across our senses like a movie trailer. Apocalyptic is a type of literature that's subversive, highly visual, and symbolic. It's like prophecy in that it typically describes the future, but it's much more colorful than prophecy. If prophecy is a movie synopsis, then apocalyptic is like a 3D, 4K movie trailer. George Schaub writes this about the apocalyptic genre. It gives the reader a glimpse behind the scenes in a reality that transcends the believer's miserable existence. These pictures help the reader conceptualize, he says, a God-centered world. The symbols are larger than life and they stick in the mind and convey, convey far more meaning than simply listing one military campaign after another. So let's tour this beastly barnyard by looking at first the vision of Daniel 8, second the meaning of Daniel 8, and finally the encouragement of Daniel 8. So number one, the vision of Daniel 8. As Daniel stands near a defensive position in Babylon, a ram appears. A ram is a male sheep. I learned that this week. I wasn't aware of that. Most likely, it looked like one of these guys on the screen. These are kinds of sheep found in modern-day Iran. This is the Barbary sheep. Or maybe it looked a little bit like this guy, the Mouflon sheep. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his name right. But before I meet him, I'm going to figure out how to say his name right. He looks like he could do some damage. This is how Daniel describes the ram. Look at verse 3. He had two horns. The two horns were long, but one was 
longer than the other, and the longer one came up last. I saw the ram charging to the west and the north and the south, and no animal could stand against him, and there was no rescue from his power. He did whatever he wanted and became great. So this is that sheep in the penning farm that the moms are really nervous about being near their kid, okay? Powerful, self-indulgent, mighty. But then the camera angle widens out a bit, and we're introduced to the goat, verse 5. As I was observing, a male goat appeared coming from the west across the surface of the entire earth without touching the ground. So this goat probably looked a bit like this fellow. This is a Nubian ibex, and you can see he's got a couple of back scratchers built in. There are at least two significant differences, though, between this picture and Daniel's vision. First, the goat in Daniel's vision is moving so fast that he isn't touching the ground. Unnatural speeds. And second, Daniel's goat has only one horn, not two. It's a unicorn wannabe. And the one-horned goat doesn't want to share his territory with anyone. So we come to verse 6. The goat rushed at the ram with savage fury. I saw him approaching the ram, and infuriated with him, he struck the ram, breaking his two horns, and the ram was not strong enough to stand against him. So the goat threw him to the ground, trampled him, and there was no one to rescue the ram from his power. Which, by the way, there was no one to rescue anyone from the ram's power just a few verses earlier, but now no one is able to rescue the ram from the goat's power. Then the male goat acted even more arrogantly, but when he became powerful, his large horn was broken. And in its place, four conspicuous horns sprout up, pointing towards the four winds of heaven. So the powerful, self-indulgent, mighty ram is destroyed by a lightning-fast, arrogant, powerful goat. Clear as mud? But the goat's one long horn is broken and four grow in its place. But the vision isn't over. So we've got a goat, we've got a ram, and then we have a little horn. Look at verse 9. From one of the four horns, a little horn emerges and grew extensively towards the south and the east and the beautiful land. That's Palestine. It grew as high as the heavenly army and made some of the army and some of the stars fall to the earth and trampled them. It acted arrogantly even against the prince of the heavenly army. I wonder who that is. And that's the vision. But as the movie trailer winds down, Daniel hears a conversation about the movie trailer. Look at verse 13. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the speaker, How long will the events of this vision last? How long will the regular sacrifice and the rebellion that makes desolate and the giving over of the sanctuary of the army to be trampled, how long? And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be restored. So there you go. That's the vision of Daniel 8. So now let's look secondly at the meaning. 
the meaning of Daniel 8. We don't have to try to figure this out without help. Because in the text, one of the holy ones actually gives the meaning of this vision. Look at verse 15. While I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there stood before me someone who appeared to be a man. I heard a human voice calling from the middle of the Ulai Canal, Gabriel, explain the vision to this man. So Gabriel approached where I was standing, and when he came near, I was terrified and fell face down. Son of man... He said to me, understand that the vision refers to the time of the end. But while he was speaking to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Then he touched me, made me stand up and said, I am here to tell you what will happen at the conclusion of the time of wrath. Because it refers to the appointed time of the end. So twice he's referenced the time of the end. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat represents the king of Greece. And the large horn between his eyes represents the first king. Okay, I'm going to back out of the passage. Let's take a 30,000-foot view before we dive back in. What should Daniel and the followers of God expect after the Babylonian kingdom? Well, these four things. First, Media Persia is going to conquer Babylon. Second, Greece is going to conquer Medo-Persia. Third, the kingdom of Greece is going to divide into four less powerful kingdoms. And four, a consequential king arises from one of these four kingdoms. So that's the 30,000 foot view. But is this actually what happened in history? Well, let's take a look. Remember... This vision is taking place during the Babylonian kingdom. King Belshazzar is on the throne. We heard that as Kayla read verse 8 or chapter 8, verse 1. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, a vision appeared to me. Now, at the end of Belshazzar's reign, we saw this in chapter 5, verse 30. That very night, Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, that's the Babylonians, he was killed. And Darius, the Mede, received the kingdom. So yes, in fact, the ram, the Medo-Persian kingdom, is going to conquer the Babylonian kingdom in Daniel's lifetime. And we know that from history. So far, so good. But what happens next in history? Well, the ram, the Medo-Persian kingdom, is crushed by the goat with a large horn. The large horn becomes four lesser impressive horns, less impressive horns. And Gabriel says that the goat represents Greece. And in fact, in history, Medo-Persia was conquered by a very fast-moving king from Greece. Fast, kind of like a leopard with wings from Daniel 7. Or fast, kind of like a goat running without touching the ground as it does here in Daniel 8. Maybe you've heard of this first king of Greece. His name was Alexander the Great. Not the first king of Greece, but the king that 
overcame the Medo-Persian Empire. But Alexander the Great died at the age of 33. He left no clear heir. So what happens? I bet even if you don't know your history, you can tell me what happens from Daniel 8 to the kingdom of Greece. It divides into four kingdoms. After all the upheaval has shaken out, four generals divide Alexander's kingdom among them. The one horn is replaced by four horns. So you have Ptolemy, king of Egypt. You have Seleucus, king of Syria. You have Lysimachus, king of Thrace. And you have Cassander, king of Macedonia or Greece. And yes, I had how to pronounce those names written out in my notes so I could get them out. So far, so good. Daniel's vision is actually worked out in history. Media Persia conquers, Media Persia conquers Babylon. Greece conquers Media Persia. The kingdoms of Greece divide into four less powerful kingdoms. But what about the little horn? What about the consequential king? This is how Daniel described it in his vision. The little horn revoked God's regular sacrifice. This is verse 9. And overthrew the place of his sanctuary. In the rebellion, the army was given up together with the regular sacrifice. The horn threw truth to the ground and was successful in what it did. And now Daniel, or rather Gabriel, is going to explain to Daniel this little horn. Look down at verse 22. I want you to see this. The four horns that took the place of the broken horn represents four kingdoms. They will rise from that nation, but without its power. Near the end of their kingdoms, when the rebels have reached the full measure of their sin, a ruthless king, skilled in intrigue, will come to the throne. His power will be great, but it will not be his own. He will cause outrageous destruction and succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy the powerful along with the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper through his cunning and by his influence. And in his own mind, he will exalt himself. He will destroy many in a time of peace. He will even stand against the prince of princes, yet he will be broken, not by human hands. So let's ask the question. Is there a king, in fact, in history, who resembles this little, arrogant, ruthless, powerful, deceitful, self-exalting, consequential king? You probably aren't surprised to hear that, yes, such a king existed. His name was Antiochus IV Epiphanes, called Epiphanes by his detractors, which means madman. He arrived on the scene about 175 B.C. Antiochus IV stole the temple furniture from God's temple in Jerusalem. He then sacrificed a pig on the altar of God. He tried to stamp out the Jewish religion through Greek re-education. He forced the Jews to eat pork or die. 
was against the covenant of God. And in the midst of all of this, he stopped the sacrifices within the temple entirely. And he seemed to succeed. But do you remember the conversation that we overheard about a time frame? Verses 13 to 14. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the speaker, How long will the events of this vision last? The regular sacrifice, the rebellion that makes desolate, the giving over of the sanctuary and the army to be trampled, how long? And he said to me, 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be destroyed. Now these verses feature prominently in our geographic context. Say how so? Well, in 1831, Baptist preacher William Miller declared that Jesus Christ was going to return in the year 1844 based upon his study of this exact text. He took the 2300 morning and evenings and said each of those represents one year, so 2300 years from a certain date means that Jesus is coming back 1844. Well, you might have guessed what happened in 1844. It came and went, and Jesus didn't return. But it was crushing. It became known as the Great Disappointment. Seventh-day Adventism grew out of that as they reinterpreted Miller's teaching to say that Daniel 8 refers to Jesus' cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary which, by the way, is nowhere described or even mentioned in the Bible. And until as recently as 2005, okay, Seventh-day Adventist adherents were required to declare their, or rather declare at their baptism, that the Seventh-day Adventist church is the remnant church of Bible prophecy. But friends, we don't need to spiritualize this prophecy in this way. The 2,300 evenings and mornings refer to the morning and evening sacrifices at the temple in Jerusalem. So if you take two sacrifices a day, that means that this is a time period of approximately 1,150 days, if my math is correct, or rather if the math of others I relied upon is correct. If you put those days into years, that's approximately three years and two months. Guess what? The time period from when Antiochus ended the sacrifices to when the sacrifices restored is almost exactly three years and two months. Speaking of Antiochus, what was his end? Now, we don't make a habit at Sojourn of quoting from the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha refers to a series of historical books. They're not part of the 66 received and God-breathed books of the Bible canon. But the early church viewed the Apocrypha as containing historical detail. One Apocryphal book, 2 Maccabees, describes Antiochus' end in detail. Let me read it for you. Antiochus had spoken proudly that he would come to Jerusalem and make it a common burying place of the Jews. But the all-seeing Lord, the God of Israel, struck Antiochus with an incurable and invisible blow, 
as soon as he stopped speaking, he was seized with a pain in his bowels for which there was no relief and with sharp internal torture. And that very justly, for he had tortured the bowels of others with many and strange afflictions. Yet he did not in any way stop his insolence, but was even more filled with arrogance, breathing fire in his rage against the Jews and giving orders to drive even faster. And so it came about that he fell out of his chariot as it was rushing along, and his fall was so hard as to torture every limb of his body. Thus, he who only a little while before had thought in his superhuman arrogance that he could command the waves of the sea and had imagined that he could weigh the high mountains in a balance, that man was brought down to earth and carried in a litter, making the power of God manifest to all. And so the ungodly man's body swarmed with worms. And while he was still living in anguish and in pain, his flesh rotted away. And because of the stench of the whole, or because of the stench, his whole army felt revulsion at his decay. Pleasant reading. Remember the words of Gabriel? In his own mind, he will exalt himself. He will destroy many in a time of peace. He will even stand against the prince of princes, yet he will be broken, not by human hands. So friends, what are we to learn from this beastly barnyard of an animal farm? It brings us to number three, the encouragement of Daniel 8. This morning, I want to draw out seven encouragements for us from this text. First, take God at his word. He can be trusted. Daniel 8 covers events as little as a year after itself and as far ahead as 370 years, and it's accurate. Down to the details. So accurate that scholars come to Daniel 8 And say, there's no way this was spoken beforehand. It had to be written after the fact. It's too accurate. But friends, the God of the Bible is sovereign and powerful and truthful. And why should we be surprised that he knows the events of human history before they are to take place? He's decreed them. You can trust him to do what he says he will do. Second encouragement. This will sound uncannily familiar like last week. Expect opposition from arrogant, beastly powers until Jesus returns. We're going to meet Antiochus IV again in Daniel 11. And he becomes in history a pattern of the one called the Antichrist. Who stands opposed to the one true and living Christ. An ultimate Powerful, end-time figure, pure embodied evil. Jesus told us to expect until that Antichrist arrives, many little Antichrists. Matthew 24, 
For many will come in my name saying, I am the Messiah. This is Jesus speaking. And they will deceive many. You're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed because these things must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There'll be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these events are the beginnings of labor pains. Then they will hand you over to be persecuted and they will kill you. You will be hated by all nations because of my name. Then many will fall away. Many will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Because lawlessness will multiply, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. This good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Those are the words of our Lord Jesus. But as Christians, we can tend towards a lot of hand-wringing when we face any level of opposition, can't we? And if we aren't careful, we can react in fear instead of responding in faith-fueled love, compassionate conviction. Now friends, without question, our culture is in the midst of much confusion and chaos. You could even go so far to say that it seems like one version of the American kingdom is being superseded by another version of the American kingdom. But here's the reality, and this is good news, neither version is the kingdom of God. Can I get an amen? Christian, whichever vision for the good life in America that you lean towards... Don't embrace it wholeheartedly. And if you choose not to embrace it wholeheartedly, then expect to experience opposition from the right and from the left, period. Why? Because as a follower of God, you ought to expect opposition. Both ends of our political spectrum have deep flaws and embrace untruths. And I hope you can see that no matter which one you embrace. And both also reflect, to some degree, good longings of the human heart. So because they are both flawed, don't give your life entirely to either vision. If you are a follower of Jesus, then you have given up your right to self-sovereignty and expressive individualism. The sort of expressive individualism where what you feel determines what is true. Following Jesus means you have embraced a reality that fundamentally changes your perspective on life. And it means that God is progressively realigning your perspective with God's perspective on the nature of his creation. On the reality and depth of the fall. On the need for redemption and of the coming new creation. Which no political party is going to deliver on. So that means... Politically conservative Christians need to think deeply about issues like the history and experiences of racism built into systems and policies which still plague us. 
environmental stewardship of the creation God has given to us. Corporate greed that creates disadvantages or takes advantages of others. The need to care for in ways that cost us the overlooked for in society and those with mental health challenges. And if you begin to think deeply about these things, expect opposition from others who lean conservative. Because you're going against the status quo. And politically progressive Christians need to wrestle with things like transgender ideology denying the nature of created reality. Placing human beings in the position of God to create our own reality based on what? What we feel. Wrestle with things like gender-affirming medical intervention, which physically and emotionally scars individual humans made as sexed and gendered embodied beings in the image of God. Abortion rights, which encourages the taking of the most vulnerable life with no voice of its own. The fact that parents have been given the God-ordained responsibility for the formation of their children. And in rethinking these sorts of realities, if you lean progressive, expect opposition from others who lean progressive. Because Christianity is a third way. It does not embrace wholeheartedly any man-made platform or system. And if we think it does, we've lost the gospel. Church, remember, you have been united to Jesus and with one another by faith. And that goes so much more deeply. That reality is so much deeper than what box you check on a Tuesday in November. So what's the most consequential thing you and I can do in 2023 and 2024? The answer is not voting. And it's not posting on social media. The most consequential thing we can do is not winning an ideological argument. The most consequential thing we can do is compassionately demonstrate and convictionally declare the beauty of the gospel. A gospel that brings us into an eternally glorious and perfect kingdom under the reign of King Jesus. There are victims and aggressors that you and I interact with every day in this beastly barnyard of the animal farm that we call the world. Individuals who need to hear that there is hope, there's healing, there's forgiveness, there's honor, there's glory, there's joy awaiting them in the arms of Jesus. Not in the arms of their chosen political candidate. Third encouragement. Commit to declaring and demonstrating the compelling beauty of life in the internal kingdom of King Jesus. Fourth encouragement. Know who you are in God's eyes. There are a couple of details here that was easy to miss in this vision. In this beastly barnyard, how does God view his children? What is his perspective? Well, in the words of James Hamilton, as a child of God, you are biblically 
and cosmically significant. Gabriel calls us the heavenly army or host, depending on your translation. And he also describes the followers of God as stars in Daniel 8 verse 10. This reminds us that God promised Abraham descendants as many as the what? The stars of the night skies. And we follow the star that rises from Jacob as described in Numbers chapter 24. So church, Christian, hear this. Your life is not insignificant in the grand scheme and sweep of history. You are not swallowed up in a story making your life meaningless. The story of the Bible, the grand story of Daniel 7 and 8 and 11 and 12, flood your life and your story with meaning and significance. In God's eyes, you are as biblically and cosmically significant as the stars of heaven. Because he formed you. He chose you. He loves you, and he will vindicate you. Fifth encouragement, don't forget to whom all power and authority belongs. The beastly powers of the animal farm world in which we live have their shelf life determined by God himself. And didn't we see this earlier in the book of Daniel? Belshazzar thinking he's on top of the world, and the handwriting's on the wall. He's got a shelf life. After exalting themselves as gods against God, each beastly power will in turn be broken. So six encouragement. Fear, fearlessly and faithfully follow your king. I think it's interesting. We, we didn't read the, the last couple of verses of this chapter, but if you look down at them, the chapter ends with Daniel's confusion. He doesn't have the clarity of history that you and I have. He doesn't have the rest of the revelation of Scripture that you and I have. And often, in the whirlwind that is life, in a technocentric, politically divisive, culturally unstable, geographic, uh, geopolitically volatile age of outrage... We can relate to Daniel's confusion, can't we? But his example is one we can follow. What does Daniel do? He gets up and he serves the king. In the midst of our confusion, in a given moment, we engage with what we know to be true, what God has called us to that day. And how can we function in this confusion? And with potential anxiety that it might create within us? Well, friend, if you have given your life to King Jesus to safeguard and rule, then you're part of a kingdom that will have no end. And that's a story to fearlessly orient your life and empower your servants as you live in the kingdom of God pray together. Lord Jesus, we ask for your presence among us, 
as wisdom embodied, as the lamb, as the lion. Father, we're not content to simply experience the presence of Jesus in these ways in this moment. Would you give us courage and grace to enter the beastly barnyard of our world where powers are constantly at work to subvert and conquer and overcome? Give us courage to enter this place with joy, with peace, non-anxiously, prayerfully, ready to demonstrate what it looks like to live as a contented citizen of the kingdom of heaven. King Jesus, go with us by your spirit this week. We ask this in the name of you who gave your life for us, who loves us. In Jesus' name, amen.